Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys. Hello, Mr. and Ms. America. This is Joe Dickerson, your host for the Judgment Enforcement Hour. We're here to help the victims of fraud, civil theft, embezzlement, contract disputes, divorce, and estate settlements, and God knows what other kind of malfeasance and deeds that you may be the victim of. I'm here to bring you my 55 years of financial forensic research and the case management skills that we've developed over these years to recover loss and enforce your judgments. Speaking of judgments, would you believe that 80% of the civil judgments in the U.S. are never enforced? That includes judgments entered by the family law courts. That's right. When a judge awards you 50, a half million or 50 million, that's right. You never get your money. Although 80% of the failure rate for judgment enforced is the correct number, I must say it's just not right. It's not right for you not to be able to recover what the court said is yours, having been granted to you by the courts. Families are often taken apart when some members of the family chooses to not do what's right. That's why I'm in business, and that's why I do not give up. That's why I've devoted the rest of my life to correct these horrible wrongs in our society. And that's why my next guest on the Judgment Enforcement Hour, Rich Harris, who happens to be one of my personal friends and professional colleagues, is, in my opinion, one of the finest family law attorneys in the United States. I'm pleased and honored to introduce you to my friend and longtime colleague, Rich Harris. Rich, welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Please tell our audience, uh, yeah, give our audience some ideas about your background and a little about some of the notorious things that you and I have done to give the bad guys their rightful share of justice. (laughs) Well, thank you kindly, Joe. It is a pleasure to be on with you and um, to participate in this program. I think it's a great idea for you to be sharing your expertise um, with the public, and I'm happy to, to go into all the gory details and tell you as much as you'd like about what I do and, and how we can right some wrongs on this planet. Wonderful. Well, audience, it's now your opportunity to call in to ask either Rich or me or both of us any questions you may have about recovering your money or questions that uh, you may have or comments that you would like to make. Our call-in number is 866-472-5790. At the end of the program today, Rich and I will give you our office phone numbers and our email addresses, uh, so be ready to write them down in case any of you would like to speak with us privately uh, in the days to come. But to reach us now to discuss your questions or issues and to share your comments, please call in on our hotline, 866-472-5790. Rich, let's start today's discussion by talking about some of the various areas of family law that your firm generally helps with and the programs that we can discuss some of the more unusual cases. Rich, take it over. You bet, Joe. Um, So um, I'm the principal of the Harris Law Firm, and we specialize and actually practice exclusively in the area of family law. Um, People sometimes are confused about what that means, so so let me just clarify. Um, Family law, in terms of what we do in our firm, means handling cases related to the family, specifically um, most often problems in the family. We handle divorce, we handle child custody matters, um, we handle um, uh, domestic violence situations, um, we, we do a wide variety of things and, and um, the firm's been out there knock on wood for 25 plus years 
Um, and I'm proud to say that, that we, we're in this, quite honestly, to help people. Um, this is an area of practice that I personally chose to engage in, and all the attorneys in this firm have chosen to be in because people going through, for example, a divorce are scared, they're vulnerable, they're stressed out, their world perhaps is falling apart, and we believe that we have a unique opportunity to help and, and to take care of people and help them navigate the court system. Um, so in a nutshell, that's what we do. Everything essentially related to families and how they wind up in court disputing things. Well, that's great. It sounds like a lot of different areas to cover. So let's talk about a few of those uh, one at a time here, Rich. Uh, you mentioned divorce. Uh, I know legal separation is always a question. Uh, tell us how legal separation fits into a divorce matter. Sure, you bet, Joe. So um, first of all, uh, in terms of the overview, um, the Harris Law Firm is is located in Colorado. So all the comments I'm going to make today are generally related to Colorado law only. It's a state-specific practice. So um, for divorce here in Colorado, it's called dissolution of marriage. Um, and legal separation is also an option. I'm often asked, what is the difference? Um, and the reality is, in terms of what I do as a lawyer and how long it takes and how much it tends to cost for the clients, the, the differences are not as dramatic as people would think. Um, in a legal separation, you still need to divide up all the marital assets and debts. You still need to deal with um, all the issues related to the children, including the custody and the visitation and the child support. Um, it's essentially a choice that some folks make either for religious reasons, um, sometimes for reasons related to health insurance, um, that they don't want the final step of a legal divorce decree, but they want a legal separation. It's not generally the remedy if all you want to do is get through it more quickly or to save fees, unfortunately. Okay, so those are the major differences. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, get referred to mediation in some of the courts. Uh, I assume that's also true in divorce courts. So speak, if you would, to the pros and cons of that. You bet. Um, and I appreciate the question, Joe, because this is an important part of, of how the system handles cases. Um, mediation is a process whereby folks go into it voluntarily, um, hopefully with full disclosure of all their assets and debts, and I think we'll get into that more in more detail later, but there's full disclosure. Um, people go see a trained mediator, um, sometimes with attorneys, sometimes not with attorneys, and they attempt to discuss the issues and, and reach a settlement. Um, mediation is a great option in the majority of cases. We strongly believe that if folks can do anything they can to settle out of court and avoid rolling the dice and letting a judge essentially decide their fate, that's better. It tends to be a better settlement. People are happier with it. It's cheaper. Um, it provides closure more quickly, and it protects the kids. Um, our firm um, encourages our clients to go to mediation. We bring clients to mediators in our cases, and some of the lawyers here in this firm, including myself, I, I also act as a mediator or an arbitrator. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so we can offer either service um, it's, a, it's a really good option for most cases. When is it not? It's not a good option in, in a couple of main situations. Number one, if there is a, a huge imbalance in power between the parties, and, and by imbalance I mean something significant that the lawyers can't really overcome, and, and it's often situations involving domestic violence. Um, both 
parties must be able to conduct themselves voluntarily, freely, um, comfortably, and if one is under duress and if one is afraid um, beyond the ability to handle the situation, mediation is not a good option, and, and that's most cases involving proven domestic violence. Um, the other big area where mediation is not a good option, either not at all or at least not in terms of timing, is where one of the parties is hiding the ball, where you're walking into a mediator's office. Well, yeah, we missed Rich there. Hopefully he can get back uh, on board here in a few minutes. There's uh, several other areas that I want to discuss with him. Uh, I know we want to talk about property distribution here uh, shortly. So uh, right now it's time to go to commercial. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at FinancialForensicServices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back from that break. Uh, let's continue, Rich, talking about mediation, the pros and the cons. I know we got started with that before the break, so let's go ahead and talk about the, the good, the bad, and the ugly on mediation. You bet, Joe. And again, I appreciate the question. Um, mediation is such a, an increasingly prominent part of what we do in the family law court process. Um, so mediation is a service whereby two disputing parties, for let, let's say, for example, husband and wife, um, go in and they see a third party neutral. Um, they go in either with or without attorneys. And the whole goal is to try and settle their dispute without going to court. And in general, that's a great thing. Um, Folks should be doing everything they reasonably can to avoid spending the money and going through the heartache of going to court where you're essentially rolling your dice and having a judge decide your fate. Um, So... Mediation is a great opportunity to settle cases in divorce and other family law cases. Um, We encourage almost all of our clients to go. Some of the attorneys in our firm, including myself, are mediators as well, so we can offer mediation as a service as well. Um, it's, It's great for most folks, but not everybody. There's a couple situations where mediation is generally not a good idea. Um, one of those situations is where there's domestic violence. Um, if you've got a situation where one party is afraid of or under the power of another party, that's not a good deal, and we definitely do not recommend mediation. 
Um, the other big area where it's a no-no is where one of the, the parties is, is hiding the ball. Um, at least mediation is not a good idea timing-wise. If you're walking into a mediator's office and you don't have full disclosure of all the assets and debts, it's a waste of time and it's dangerous. And in those situations, what we're typically going to do is, is call in a superstar PI or forensic expert such as yourself, Joe, to help us um, do what we need to do to get the full disclosure to happen. So it may be bad for one party, but not necessarily bad for the other party. Well, that's true. That is, that is true. Um, although as a professional, I would tell you that if my client's the one that's hiding the ball, um, I'm going to do all I can to, to talk them out of that 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 of destructive tactic. Um, but frankly, if they don't listen and I try and try, they're not going to be my client for very long because it's it's, it's an affront to justice, and I'm just not going to tolerate it. Well, uh, unfortunately, that's not the ethics that a lot of attorneys have nowadays. So we see both sides of it uh, just about every week. Uh, sure. Let's go ahead and, and delve into a little bit more now of the domestic violence and protection order situation. And I've always wondered, is that really a two-way street uh, so that it ends up being fair for both parties? Or is it always a nagging problem for the one that's the victim of that? Sure. Well, you know, that's a great question. So. To do it justice, let me, let me make a couple general points, and then I'll, I'll get more specific if I could. Um, yes. First of all, domestic violence is absolutely an epidemic in our society. society. It's a horrible, terrible problem, and it's a good thing that domestic violence is being talked about more and is being outed for the ugly scourge that it is. So... That that's the positive, not the positive, but but that's a fact. Domestic violence is out there; it's prominent, um, and it, it's it's a serious harm to our society. Um, the challenge, however, in um, the family law courts that that we have to deal with as lawyers and, and judges do as well, um, is that since folks know this is such a a talked about issue and because dealing with it can have such a profound impact on how issues like child custody and and child support and other things are decided, you've got false allegations of abuse going on every day in courts all around this country. Yes. And that is a horrible, terrible thing to deal with and it, it so, you know, we, all we can do as lawyers, hopefully the ethical lawyers know that it's our job to get the truth on the table, to get the facts on the table, um, most certainly to protect, protect victims. But also, we've been in lots and lots of situations, sadly, where we're defending somebody who's been falsely accused, whether it's domestic violence or, gosh forbid, child abuse. We see that a lot. Um, It's the nuclear bomb in a divorce case, and it's a really bad deal. Well, what are you going to do, Rich, when you you think that you are having false allegations, and as you move forward with your client, somehow you determine that those allegations against your client are not false? How do you, as, a, as an ethical attorney, uh, continue to work those cases, and, and what's the best outcome you can expect? Yeah, that's a great question, Joe. So I guess I would say that, first of all, um, the reality is that there are different levels of violence. And what I mean by that is... It's certainly, in in my personal ethical opinion, a black and white, wrong or right situation for sure. But um, you can be accused of domestic violence for things that a lot of people would consider relatively minor, like throwing a remote control into a TV. 
um, there was a prominent athlete in Denver, you may remember the story, who was prosecuted for that. Now, he was wrong about that, and I think he'd admit that, but it's not the same as if that same individual had, had taken out a gun or used his fists on his wife. That's not what happened. Um, This is a long-winded way of saying that there are certain times and cases where if we find out that our client is indeed a perpetrator, some of those cases, we're not going to continue the representation. Um, We don't represent known abusers or child molesters or pet assaulting folks as a a matter of policy. We just don't. and we'll refer those folks out to another attorney. We'll keep confidentiality. But I'm not a hired gun, and I'm not a public defender. I don't have to represent every client that comes in my door. Yes. Uh, well, I think that's that's a good answer to that. Uh, so when you have these domestic violence cases, and they end up... Uh, being temporarily resolved through protective orders. Uh, let's talk about those protective orders and how they should work and how they do work, because there may be a significant difference between the two. Sure. Another great question. So, um, so a, a protective order is um, entered in a case where a party has successfully proven to a judge or a magistrate that um, there has been violence or a threat of violence and the other party needs to stay away. Um, It used to be called a restraining order. Now it's called a protective order in the family law courts. A temporary protective order goes into effect and... um, Many times, I would would say most times, it's absolutely warranted. And you've given folks a breather, you've protected, for example, a mom and her kids from an aggressor. That's important. The problem is, and to to your question, is that it's an imperfect system filled, filled with imperfect human beings. And so what happens in a lot of cases is you have the allegation you have the myths of litigation, you have a fear about attorney's fees, um, and sometimes what people will do is rather than going to court and fighting against a protective order, they'll either not show up to the hearing or they'll agree to the entry of the protective order to save fees or to avoid what they, they fear to be an embarrassing courtroom appearance. And then you go down the road, now you've got a protective order in the middle of a divorce, for example, and it's going to have a downstream impact on a whole host of issues like child custody. And people are often surprised, and it's an it's a unfortunate situation. Okay, so the, the protective order is in place and I can see how that would have a negative impact when it came time for custody, but what happens to the party that had to seek a legitimate protective order and uh, it's being violated? Uh, what can what can that person do to protect themselves beyond uh, having a confrontation and come out on the worst end of it and then have to go back and get another one? And when does that physically have to stop for the protection of the victim? Mm-hmm. Well, you're asking questions that, that go to the heart of some of the most difficult cases that we've handled. Um, in real violent situations, first of all, um, if there's been a history of, of violence in a marital relationship, um, I tell all of my clients at the very first meeting that there's a strong likelihood that it's going to flare up as soon as we file and serve the other party. Yes. So what we're, what we're doing proactively is not just talking about a protective order, a piece of paper. We're talking about a comprehensive safety plan um, for the, the, the victim um, and, and the potential future victim, um, whereby um, we're talking to folks about 
safe places to stay, um, keeping your email and your, your online communications confidential, um, where to keep important papers, um, how to protect your kids and your pets. By the way, I alluded to pets earlier. Um, one of the ugly secrets out there is that domestic uh, offenders um, are very often going to use the pets as an additional tool of control and violence if there's already violence in the relationship. Yeah. Um, so we're doing all these things, and then when we get the order, we're, getting, we're making sure we get the paperwork in order, and we're talking to our clients about where to keep those papers and exactly what to do when confronted with a bad situation and how to handle, for example, visitation transfers, whether we're going to do those at a police station, for example, or through a third-party relative, etc. We're trying to have as many proactive conversations as we can in the, in those cases. Well, that's good, and it's good that those things are being recognized and dealt with on top of the table until, instead of after somebody uh, becomes a serious victim of abuse or violence, because those things are not reversible sometimes. Absolutely. We don't, we're not 100% successful, sadly. We do our best, but it is... A, a, a crazy world at times, and you know all we can do as professionals is our very best every day. And, of course. and sometimes tragedies still occur. Yeah, uh, let's talk a little bit again. I don't want to beat this subject to death, but I know there are a lot of people interested in it. Uh, when you have to get or are seeking an emergency order. Uh, what are time frames and elements of that, and what can uh, the victims that are seeking the protection reasonably expect in the way of guidelines for what uh, could come down from the courts to to help them deal with these situations? Sure. So I assume, Joe, we're, we're talking about domestic violence situations, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So um, the good news is that if if... if if a client is in my office telling me that they're in imminent danger, um, first of all, we're going to talk about law enforcement. We're going to talk about their possessions and their kids. Um, but if we need a restraining order or a protective order, like even I'm using the old terminology because they, <laughs> historically they were, always, they were always restraining orders. Um, sure. But we can go in and get a protective order on the same day. And the way it works is um, we will physically go to the courthouse with our clients with all the paperwork in order. And the law entitles us to get a hearing, the first hearing anyway, without the other party being present or even served. We get that initial order, um, we serve the other party, and then the other party is allowed to come to court and, and explain his or her side of the matter. But we can get these things done right away, and we often will if, if there's a true violent situation. Okay, so you get a, a, I guess it's like a temporary order, and then the other party is uh, given notice that on a certain date and time they can come and be heard. That's exactly right. And then you may get a more permanent order if it's merited in the opinion of the court. That's exactly right. Yep. And we can either do it if a divorce is already pending, we can go in, or we can do it if there's no divorce pending. We go into county court, depending on the county. We don't need a full divorce to be filed. Um, we can get this done. And, and I would say to your listeners that we all hear about crowded court dockets and, and a crazy system, and we've got all of that for sure. But the good news is in, in virtually every metro county in this state, we can walk in and get a protective order on the same day, and that's good news. So you don't necessarily have to do that in domestic court. Any judge can enter that, that temporary order. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, you know, it'll depend on the county that you're in. It doesn't have to be the domestic relations judge, no. Um, it, it'll be, depending on whatever the rules are for the particular county, um, whoever is what they call the duty judge yes. that's able to hear these. Okay. 
So there are a lot of ifs and ands and buts depending on where you're located and what the local rules may uh, allow to occur or not occur. That's right. Um, these things are, you know, they're not they're not difficult for an experienced practitioner, but for the general public, um, yeah, it can be confusing. Okay. All right. Well, why don't we move on now uh, and talk about uh, child custody, what the various elements of making those uh, decisions are, particularly if they're contested, and then I guess that will be a natural move into uh, child support uh, as we determine which party has custody or how custody is shared. Sure. So um, child custody um, in, in our state, in Colorado, um, can be determined in a few different kinds of court cases. Um, it can be in a divorce situation. It can be in a situation where the parents were never married, um, and, and, and that's called an allocation of parental responsibilities case. And I will tell you that in the 25 years I've been practicing, these kinds of cases are a lot more prominent. A lot, there's a lot more folks out there who have kids together who were not married, and we still have to deal with child custody. Um, it can also happen through the juvenile court system, um, and that's a, there's a bit of complexity there. But in general, if we're having to determine paternity or social services is involved, we're dealing with child custody in the juvenile courts. Um, there's a lot that goes into how these things are determined, so let me pause and, and let you ask whatever you think might be most of interest to your listeners. Well, as you were talking, I was just wondering, when we were talking about children born uh, outside of uh, actual formal wedlock, uh, what happens in a situation where one party says, well, yes, we were common law married and uh, we held ourselves out to be husband and wife, and the other party says, no, we never did that. Uh, we were just living together and this child was born, and uh, mm -hmm. then you can't even, uh, you don't have a consensus on whether or not they intended to be married or not. Does that have to be right. adjudicated also? Yeah, it does. This is an interesting question. It has a couple of different layers to it. First of all, um, the way the court determines child custody is not dependent upon whether or not the parents were married. So it used to be a couple hundred years ago under the common law in England, um, if a child was born that was illegitimate, there was a child that was not born as issue of a legal marriage, um, that child had all sorts of negative legal situations. They had a very um, uh, poor legal status. Uh, it was a bastard child. Um, and I, I mean that in the legal sense of it, not in yes. the bad word sense of it, of course. Um, I understand. That has all changed throughout this country and certainly in Colorado. So the way the courts deal with these issues, it doesn't matter whether the folks are married or not. Now, having said that, um, whether or not they're married is a huge issue. And Colorado, it's a huge issue for dealing with property division and debt division and awarding of, of alimony or maintenance. It's a huge issue. Um, Colorado is, is one of a dozen or so states in our country that still recognizes common law marriage. Um, most states no longer do. And we have a lot of litigation over whether or not a common law marriage exists. Okay. So uh, what is the current status of that uh, Rich, if if we're the exception to the rule here, what is the rule elsewhere? Right. So the rule elsewhere, and if I had a crystal ball, which of course I don't, no. <laughs> um, I, I would predict that at some point in the next five or ten years, it's going to be abolished in our state, because certainly that's the national trend to abolish it. And if it's abolished, what that means is 
you're not legally married unless you followed the state's laws on obtaining a legal marriage. So in Colorado, that requires you to get a license, and you have to jump through some hoops before you get that license. Um, so it would be far more of a black and white, bright line test, are they married or not? Show me the, the marriage certificate. Um, unless okay, Rich, we've got about 30 seconds till break, so go ahead and let's wrap this part up. Yep. And so that's not the case here in Colorado. So in Colorado, um, we've got this gray area where we're taking testimony and evidence about elements of common law, which I can talk more about if you'd like. All right. We will get to some of those uh, other elements uh, when we get back from break. But right now, it's time to go to commercial. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or Joe at FinancialForensicServices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Well, we're back from break, Rich. Thank you for a great uh, first half of the program. I appreciate all the detail you've been able to help us with. I want to jump to a little different subject right now, and then we'll get back into the uh, regular uh, type questions. But the question has come to me uh, within the last few days about annulments. And uh, if you've got a a married family, they've got three kids, uh, either they're going through a divorce, they're not, and one of the parents says, well, I want to remarry after this, and I want to be able to remarry in the church, and the only way I can do that is if I get an annulment. Uh, What happens there if one party objects to the annulment? Can they get it? Uh, What happens to the children? Do they still have the same parental uh, responsibilities and privileges of their children after an annulment? Uh, Would child support or uh, tuition or other matters still stand like they would in just a divorce? And do the children still have legal parents, although their marriage that was the basis of the children being born uh, no longer exists? Would you... I know that's a lot of questions wrapped into one, but uh, I think all of those need some answers from people that just don't understand that, you like myself. Joe, and, yep, well, I, I appreciate it, and um, if I miss any of these points, please let me know. This is an area that, that I'm passionate about and I'm happy to talk about because um, broadly... I'm in the family law practice. Most importantly, if for no other reason, it's to protect kids. Um, and, and I love kids. I'm proud to be a parent myself. 
They drive me crazy, of course, sometimes, just like all kids do. Um, but protecting children is the main thing that drives me from a professional standpoint. So, um, again, I'll, I'll make a couple broad points and then I'll, I'll narrow it down. First of all, whether or not folks are, uh, they go through a process and end with a divorce or they end with an annulment, um, the children's legal rights are unaffected. So in other words, um, if a marriage is annulled, and, and in Colorado it's actually called um, a declaration of invalidity, a declaration of invalidity, um, that means the marriage is null and void. And, and you're right in the sense that some folks want this for religious reasons. Um, for example, um, Catholics want the fact want it to be that there was never a marriage, there was never a divorce, and they're free to remarry. So that's important for some folks. Um, But regardless of what happens in that case, the court must still deal with issues related to child custody and child support and and visitation or, or parenting time in the exact same method. So it's not going to impact the kids, at least from a legal standpoint, does it impact them from um, a societal standpoint, reputational standpoint, familial standpoint? That's going to depend on, on the family. Um, and I can't speak to those issues, but from a legal standpoint, um, it's not going to harm the kids um, what happens there. Does that, that part make sense? Yes, that's uh, that's that's good to know from my uh, perspective. <laughs> Not that uh, we're involved in anything like that, but when people ask, I uh, I just don't know how to answer that, so I avoid it. But thank you for that. Yeah. That's very helpful. Well, you bet. And I would add also that um, to, to, um, obtaining an annulment, again, it's called a declaration of invalidity, is frankly not an easy thing to do in Colorado. Um, you, you either have to have both parties agreeing that the marriage should be annulled and, and putting a legal reason in, in, into the paperwork as to why, a valid reason, or as is the case in most of these situations where it's not agreed upon, you have to go into court, you being the party who wants the the annulment, and you have to prove that there was a significant legal defect to the legal entry of a marriage. And and these are big deal kinds of defects. So, for example, um, it would be bigamy if you could prove that one of the parties is still legally married. That's kind of an obvious one. Um, But the other issues that that we see more often are things like um, duress or um, that somebody didn't have their faculties about them from a mental standpoint. Um, (laughs) Their courtship was was really short. It's the Vegas wedding. It doesn't it doesn't turn on, by the way, if it was short. You can be legally married if you um, meet somebody in the casino and go get married an hour later. <laughs> that can happen. But if you met the person in the casino and you drank yourself to oblivion and then went to the wedding chapel, aha, now you've got a claim for an annulment. <laughs> okay. So, um, and so in answer to your question, the party goes in and alleges it, then the other party gets to respond, and then we litigate the issue. And a judge is going to decide whether or not the marriage is valid or not. If the answer is yes, you have to proceed with a full-blown divorce. If the answer is no, then the parties basically have to leave and come back if they have, if they have kids and go through a custody proceeding to deal with the children. Okay, if one of the parties wants the annulment uh, uh, or the declaration of invalidity uh, based on religious reasons and the other does not, are you back to the same place? Um, yes, you are. I mean, the statute does not talk about annulling a marriage for religious reasons. Um, that's not a basis for, for, 
for a declaration of invalidity. You have to have had some sort of legal impediment. And if one of the parties says, look, it's just religious, and the other party says, well, so sad, too bad, I don't care, um, the the first party's not going to get the annulment because they don't have a right under the statute. But if they're both seeking it, then it probably will be granted without having to prove any of the other elements? I, I mean, generally, yes, Joe. If, if both parties agree to it, they're still going to need to put something in the paperwork that fits within the statutory categories, um, that they in, didn't intend to be married or, or, or something like that. In general, with, with everything we do in the family law system, um, if the two parties agree on, on a big issue like that, in general, the judges are going to go along with it. They, they figure people have free will as long as there's not fraud or duress going on. Um, judges are way too busy with their dockets to be second-guessing the adult decisions people make. Particularly if no children are involved, I right. would think. Yeah. Okay. Right. They, they want to keep the kids out of court. They want to keep as many cases as they can out of court, and frankly, I support that. You know, dealing with your family law disputes in a public courtroom is the worst way to handle anything. The worst. And that's, that's speaking from the perspective of, of a professional that does it every day. I'm doing my job best if I actually keep my clients as far from the courthouse steps as possible. Yeah, it's the avenue of uh, last uh, hope, I guess. Uh, exactly. All right. Is there anything else on uh, the uh, annulment or variations of that that we have failed to cover that you think are relevant to our discussion today? Um, I'll add in just one other thing um, that comes up a lot in these cases, and it may sound silly at first, but I think the number one issue that tends to be litigated in these situations is what happens to the wedding bands? What happens to the ring? Um, people will often fight over over returning the wedding ring, and there's a bunch of reported cases on it. <laughs> you, you tend to get a pretty emotional, kind of sticky situation where one party wants the ring back. And um, at the risk of not making it a, as good of a story as it can be, I'll, I'll tell you the punchline and the answer. And the answer is, <laughs> okay. um, if, if the wedding ring was given as a gift in contemplation of a marriage, um, and that marriage goes forward, um, or even if it doesn't, if it was an intended gift, most often the other spouse keeps it. And keeping it could mean just going down to the nearest pawn shop and hocking it. Um, people often don't get the wedding ring back, and that's kind of a rude awakening for some folks. Okay, and I guess uh, maybe even uh, more sentimental might be the engagement ring, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah, we've seen ones where somebody has been given the great-grandmother's ring from where she left the shtetl in Russia, and, oh, yeah. and that's still, it's still a gift. They don't get it back, and that's kind of sad, but that's how it is. So I guess that's something that may need to be included in the prenup, huh? Yes, and we haven't talked about prenups, but for sure, if you're, if you're inclined to consider a prenup, you put in as much as you possibly can, for sure. Well, we've got about four minutes before the break, so why don't you speak a little bit to uh, the uh, prenup? Yeah, you bet. So um, the Harris Law Firm does handle um, prenuptial agreements. Um, and they are valid in our state, um, and we do quite a few of them. The best advice I can give people is that if you or your family is considering a prenup, please, please, please do yourself a favor. Do your lawyer a favor and give us a call not the night before your wedding. <laughs> I can't tell you how many calls we fielded like that. Um, really? You're putting it, yeah, you're putting yourself in a whole world of hurt because 
A prenup has got to have full disclosure. It's generally got to have lawyers on both sides. The more advanced notice you can give it, the better a chance it's got of succeeding. All right. All right. Well, very good. Well, I I misspoke when I said we had uh, four minutes until the break. We have four minutes or three minutes now until the uh, end of the program. So uh, if you want to wrap up uh, your part of this, Rich, why don't you go ahead and take about a minute to do that, and then I'll close this out. Sure. I appreciate it, Joe. So first of all, let me express my sincere thanks for having me on. It's a privilege. I, I, I love talking about what I do, uh, mostly because I love educating people. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about what the family courts do and don't do, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak about it. I also appreciate the show that you have. Um, helping folks get justice is a common goal that you and I both share. Um, and so I thank you. Um, well, after thank today, you. go ahead, Joe. Yeah, go yeah. ahead and give them your phone number and your email and in case anybody yeah, wants bet. to That's, contact you. Thank you. That's what I was just about to do. So, right. um, against the Harris Law Firm, our phone number is 303-515-5000. Again, 303-515-5000. Or you can visit us on the web at harrisfamilylaw.com. That's H-A-R-R-I-S, familylaw.com. Folks are welcome to call or email me directly. My email address is just rich, R-I-C-H, at harrisfamilylaw.com. Great, Rich. Thank you so much. You've been a great guest, and I know our listeners have found this to be most informative. For those of you that may want to speak with us this week, it's uh, 303-974-5610 or financialforensicservices.com. Be sure and tune in next week on August the 31st when our guest will be Al Hockheiser, a partner in the Morris Witcher Law Firm. Al is one of the uh, nation's uh, leading judgment enforcement attorneys and currently working with my firm uh, with over a dozen cases. So uh, please remember, it's not what you recover or not what you win, it's what you recover that matters. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next Wednesday. Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.